2 Timothy 3, and we will begin our reading at verse 10. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 10. The Word of God says in 2 Timothy 3.10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all the Lord delivered me, Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works." I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time shall come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap on themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all those who love his appearing. And the Lord will bless to us the reading of his holy words. Timothy was a comparatively young man. I say comparatively because he was probably somewhere about my age. I'm 39 years old. He was probably somewhere in what we would term middle age. It was somewhat more than middle age in the ancient world, uh, given that lifespans tended to be shorter. But still, Timothy was young enough that certain people could look on him and maybe set him aside as being one who was a little bit wet behind the ears, as they say. Hence, Paul would say to him, let no man despise your youth. And youth has its advantages. It also has its pitfalls. The wonderful thing about youth is you have lots of energy. Now, if you doubt that thesis, 
I would like to adduce uh, three proofs of what I've just said, that youth provides energy. Their names are Anastasia, Nadia, and Fiona, my three daughters. And just come and spend an afternoon with them. You'll see energy with a capital E. But even among those who are young in their adulthood, we have energy, we have strength at that time in our lives. Uh, Often there is zeal as well. And yet sometimes a, a pitfall of youth can be that one thinks that the things they're experiencing, and particular the negative things, the problems they encounter, have never been faced by anyone before in the history of the world. And that's why it's such an important thing to open up the Bible, which is the timeless wisdom of God. Because the Bible affirms that there is a God. Right on the very first page, in fact, in the very first sentence, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God already was, you see. And this God who created everything we see around us is one who specializes in revelation. That is, he discloses himself. He shows himself to us. Now, the primary means by which he does that is through his word, the Bible. It's true that you can see that there is a God who exists who must be tremendously wise and powerful, and I would argue even good, when you look at the creation itself. Because you see all around evidence of order and design. And what's more, by God's providence, you see that alone among the planets of our solar system, alone among the planets that we've ever discovered, in fact, This planet is uniquely fine-tuned to human life. Not only that we may survive and exist, but so that we may prosper and thrive. And surely a creator who makes a planet that is so uh, germane to life, so life-sustaining toward human beings, must be a good God. Indeed, the Lord Jesus would remind us that God shows his goodness this way, He makes his sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he causes it to rain upon the just and the unjust. We also know intuitively as human beings, that is, deep down within ourselves, that there is a God. Nobody starts out life as an atheist. No culture in the history of the world, in fact, has ever begun atheistically. They all start out, Believing in some sort of God, some sort of higher power. Now that internal knowledge, that sense that there is more to this life than what we can see, that there are eternal realities, that is something that people can deny and suppress and hold down, but it'll nag away at your conscience if you try to deny it. It's rather like the late atheist Christopher Hitchens who wrote that famous best-selling book, Uh, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. And I heard a Christian reviewer describing his book. He said, Hitchens' thesis is this, there is no God and I hate him. Now isn't that interesting? That even among people in our world today who say there isn't a God, if there isn't a God, then why are they so hot and bothered about him? 
Why are they so bent upon eradicating his name from the public square? Why do people like Richard Dawkins, the famous zoologist from England, who's the professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford University, why does he say teaching children in places like Sunday school about God and about the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, that that's tantamount to child abuse. It certainly isn't. It's a proclamation of the truth. A truth which is denied, but nonetheless a truth which stands. Now, although God reveals Himself in creation and reveals Himself to our human conscience, the primary means of His revelation, the way He speaks most clearly, is through His Word. And when we open up 2 Timothy 3, we encounter a world that's described that very much resembles our world. Consider, for example, verse 1, which I did not read of this chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now, in the la- this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. That word perilous there is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's back in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 28. It's used to describe two men that were demon-possessed. They were under satanic power because the Bible not only says there is a God, the Bible says there's a devil. Now, they're quite different. God is almighty. God is all powerful. God is eternal. The devil is none of those things. He's not eternal. He's a created being. He's powerful, but not all powerful. And he was made by God originally to be an angel, to be a servant of God. But he rebelled against God and has been ever since then trying to delude and deceive human beings with his lies. The Lord Jesus called him a liar and the father of it. He said he was a murderer from the beginning. And his time-honored tactic has been to attack the word of God, as we will see. Now, it's interesting that that word that's used in Matthew 8.28, when it describes those demon-possessed men, it says that they were exceedingly fierce, is how it's translated. The picture is of a person who is violently unrestrained. And these people, that certainly was a fitting description, because they were wild men. They were living among the tombs. Now, I happen to be looking for a house at the moment. We've been going around with a friend and a brother in the Lord who's a realtor, and he's been showing us various houses. It won't surprise you, I'm sure, to know that my friend has not taken us to any cemeteries to view property. Because what we're looking for is a place to live, not a place to lay our body when we die. A cemetery, the tombs, are the abode of the dead, are they not? And yet here were two men living among the abode of the dead, trafficking in dead things, as it were. Men who were so unrestrained, the Bible says they were naked. They couldn't keep clothes on. They were savage and bestial, like animals. And when the local community tried to chain them up and restrain them so that they wouldn't cut themselves because they cut themselves. And it's interesting that that's a phenomenon among modern youth, particularly young ladies, that there are some that struggle with cutting themselves and defacing themselves. And these men were doing this as well. 
And so they'd try to chain them up so they wouldn't be a danger to themselves, nor that they'd be a danger to anybody else. They were exceedingly fierce. Now that's the word that is used here when he says, Know in the last days that perilous times shall come. Times that are not under control. Times that are violent. Times that are destructive and where self-destruction predominates. And that describes the world we live in, doesn't it? That here in the most prosperous nation on the face of the earth, we have more people with drug addictions, more people with alcohol addictions, more people with pornography addictions, probably than any other country in the world. Self-destructive behavior. And yet it proliferates, doesn't it? And he would go on to tell them that there would be men who would be, verse 2, lovers of themselves. Well, didn't Whitney Houston, the late Whitney Houston, sing back in the late 80s, learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. I mean, we even have a major magazine in this country called Self. And everybody wants to talk about self-esteem and how important it is that you love yourself, that you think well of yourself. If you ever doubt that that is something prolific in our culture, just watch Oprah Winfrey for about three minutes. Any more than that nauseates me. But in any case, you know, the whole occupation with oneself, not occupation with God, not a concern for our Creator and why we are here. Why did God make us in the first place? No, It's all about us. Men shall be lovers of themselves. Covetous. Well, does that describe our society? I mean, we have a whole economy that is bent around consumerism, isn't it? We are told, stimulate the economy, help the economy by buying, by purchasing. Your old car isn't good anymore. You need the new car. Your old computer isn't good anymore. In two years, you need another one. Your iPad 2 isn't good anymore. You need the newest, latest, greatest. Your old video game system isn't good anymore. You need the next new one. The new fashion, the new clothes, the new food, the new whatever. It's always the new something, isn't it? And we're told that we need to amass more and more and more, and have the desire for things. Covetousness, the Bible describes as idolatry. It is putting things in the place that God rightly deserves. It is worshiping one's possessions. It is when your property owns you, rather than you owning your property. Well, further, they're described as boasters. And we live in the age of boasting. It is very hard to find any NBA star today when interviewed who will not boast about his abilities and how great he is. Listen to the hip-hop culture that talks about how great I am and don't you dare diss me, that is, disrespect me. Look at our culture that tells us We must be lifted up. We must be great. We must be admired. Those are the heroes of our culture. The person who puts themselves forward as great and boasts. Proud. Well, boasting flows out of pride, doesn't it? Then it says blasphemers. 
Now, blasphemy literally means evil speaking, but it has this technical sense in the Bible normally, evil speaking against God, either speaking against God directly or perhaps claiming to oneself the prerogatives of God, claiming something that is only God's himself. Then something that might seem a little more mundane to us because it is so commonplace, disobedient to parents, he says in verse 2. And my mother is here today. She can attest that the first memory verse I learned without trying was Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I learned that verse because every time I did something wrong, my mother would say, Keith, what is Ephesians 6.1? And I'd have to quote it to her with my lip out usually and mumbling and shuffling my feet as I did. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And yet, is that the normal thing today? It's not the normal thing, is it? We see the family becoming dysfunctional and breaking down at every level. We see the culture celebrating that. We're on all the sitcoms. It's the parents that are the idiots, you know? It's the children that know better. And and the teenagers just kind of suffer and put up with the parents because the parents are really morons and simpletons. God says no. He's established the family structure for man's good. He's established the authority of one's parents with the father as the head of the home. And yet today the father is a wall in many families. The father isn't even around. Or the father is absentee. Or the father, even if he lives under the same roof, is more occupied with his career, more occupied with his hobbies, more occupied with himself than with his family. No wonder then that we have children that are disobedient to parents. Then he says, unthankful. Well, that is something that, again, is so common. So seldom do we hear people say, you know, I'm thankful for what I have. Instead, we live in the age of entitlement, where people say, give me more. Come and do something for me. Come and give me what I need. Look at the outcry after Hurricane Katrina, where people stood around and said, where's the government? Why isn't the government doing something for us? Well, doubtless, the government made a lot of mistakes, and the government isn't perfect. I'll be the first to admit that. But, you know, whatever happened to helping one's neighbor? Whatever happened to being thankful for the multitudes of church groups that went to Louisiana and Mississippi and the Gulf Coast and rebuilt many of those neighborhoods? And we've been down there, and the Christians there can tell you lovely stories of how God brought Christians from all over the world down to the New Orleans area and the cities around about and down to Mississippi to rebuild the area. And yet today, there's so little gratitude. There's so little thanks. You know, Romans 1 tells us that that lies at the root of man's problem. That it says historically, when talking about 
the degeneracy that affects humankind, our depravity, how we've gone deeper and deeper into sin. It started out two ways. It says when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. What does that mean? That means they knew there was a God, and yet they didn't give God his place as God. They didn't say, yes, you're God, I'll bow the knee to you. And then it says, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. Now, later on in the list, it talks about all kinds of sexual sin, all kinds of violent sin, all kinds of murder and crimes that probably everyone would admit are bad things or terrible things and sinful things. But it started out very simply, started out with humankind saying, we're not going to listen to you, God. We're not going to listen to your word. We're going to choose our own way. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to be like little gods. Not you on the throne, God. We depose you. Us on the throne. We can call the shots. We know what's best for our lives. And we're not going to be thankful for what you give us. Daniel the prophet of old, in Daniel chapter 5, the book that bears his name, would point at the eastern despot, that famous Babylonian king Belshazzar, and he would say, the God in whose hand your breath is, you have not honored. Did you ever stop to think, my friend, this morning, that the last breath you took is on loan to you from God? That the fact that those sacks in your chest have inflated, and that your blood is being oxygenated through the activity of your lungs, and it's being pumped all around your body by the heart. And this is all happening because your brain is firing off the right electrical signals down your neurological system. And all this was put in play by a God, the God who gives you life, the God who puts you in a family, the God who's given you friends, the God who's allowed you to have health, the God who's given you every blessing and benefit that you've ever had in your life. And yet some people never turn around and say thank you to God once. How much more our spiritual condition? When while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ Jesus died for us. When Romans 5 tells us clearly, it was when we were the enemies of God. That God the Son would come into this earth in human form. Be born as a baby. Grow up to be a man, a perfect man who never committed any sin. God manifest in the flesh. Think of it. And He would do all that for the express purpose of going to the cross of Calvary and dying there and shedding His blood. And many live as if that never happened. Many live as if God has never intervened in the world and that God has never given the best, most blessed gift ever given to mankind. Horatius Bonar, the great Scottish hymn writer, and I'll work Ireland in somewhere here. I've been rebuked for all the nationalities I didn't mention yesterday. And uh, But Horatius Bonar of Scotland wrote, The gift of gifts, all other gifts in one, when he described the Lord Jesus. No wonder he would say, Blessed be God our God. Maybe it's your testimony today. Years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not my Lord was crucified. Maybe that's a description of where you are right now. 
Maybe that could describe you. You are unmoved. You don't care that Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. It doesn't mean anything to you. You might realize that it happened as a historical event. You may realize that Jesus was a historical person. But do you know that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? John one twenty nine. Do you know that He came to bear your sins in His own body on the tree? That He came to be the sacrifice by which a holy God could judge sin and instead of wrath falling on the sinner, that it would fall on you? Have you ever turned and thanked Him for that? Have you ever said, You're right about me, Lord. I'm so bad. As the hymn writer put it, Oh, how vile my lowest state since my ransom was so great. You know, we judge how bad a criminal is by the bail that's set for him oftentimes. If a really notorious criminal is captured and the judge thinks he's so dangerous, he won't let him have bail. Or in other cases, they may set bail, but they'll say, okay, we set bail at $10 million. You say, you know, $10 million. It's obvious he was not in the jail for public drunkenness. If your bail's $10 million, you've done something, man. You've broken some serious laws. Well, what, what, what must we be as human beings? If the only way, the only means of God offering salvation to us The only way that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be cleansed is that the Son of God Himself, whose life it goes without saying, is of infinite value. If that life had to be poured out on the cross to redeem us, to save us, to forgive and pardon us, how bad must we be? (coughs) Pardon me. (coughs) So bad that we deserve to be separated from our Creator for all eternity. Now that's a serious thing. That might not move you this morning. You might say, so what? I don't know God anyway. Why would I want to spend eternity with Him? Well, please know that the Bible describes God in certain ways. It says God is light, for example. Now light has to do both with knowledge and information and also with Holiness. It's used those two ways as a symbol in the Bible. And if you are separated from God for eternity, the Bible says you are cast into outer darkness. In other words, it will be dark for you forever. On times I've been places where I've gone down into an old mine on a tour. Then usually the tour guide shuts off the lights. And that's a darkness that you can almost feel. You know, it's palpable. There's no street light streaming in through your blinds. There's no little night light in the bathroom. There's no little faint glow that's being left by the sun as it's going down. You're deep in the earth and there's a darkness. And yet the darkness of being shut out from the presence of God is darker still than that. If you're separated from God for eternity, you'll know no light for eternity. Well, the Bible also says God is love. And if you're separated from God who is love, there'll be no love for you for all eternity either. 
The Lord Jesus himself describes it as weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You say, how could a God of love ever send anybody to the lake of fire? How could a God of love ever punish anyone eternally? Well, the God of love sent his son to die on the cross so that no one would ever have to. But the gift, you see, is contingent on the recipient receiving it by faith. That is to say, God offers you the gift of eternal life. God offers you forgiveness of sins. God offers you a relationship with Himself that you can have today. You don't have to wait till you die or when the Lord comes. You can start to enjoy God today if you never have before. He offers it to you today on the terms of faith. He says, you just believe my word and tell me, yes, you're right about me, God. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell, but I want to be saved. I don't want to live for myself anymore. I don't want to be separated from God. I want to have a relationship with the living God through Christ. I want to be saved. I want eternal life. And if you mean business about that, God will save you where you sit. You don't need to walk up front. You don't need to put up your hand. You don't need to sign any card. You don't need to pray any prayer after me. In the language of your own heart, if you cry out to God and say, save me a sinner. Come in and change my life and make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. The Lord will do that. The Bible calls it being born again. So the world back in Timothy's day was bad. But it was no worse than our world today. Our world today is but a continuation of it. Now he goes on to talk about the evil men and seducers who will wax worse and worse. The false teachers that were abounding. Because unfortunately, in our world today, there are a lot of false gospels. There are a lot of messages that really aren't good news. Because they claim to be a way to God or a way to spirituality, or a way to fulfillment, or a way to eternal life, and yet they're not true. Because the Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me, John 14.6. And the apostles echoed that sentiment when they said in Acts 4.12, Neither is there any name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus that saves. Only salvation is to be found in Him. Because only He went to the cross and paid the right price. Paid for our sins. Paid for them that God could say, See what I think of sin? I judge sin. I've judged it on my Son. And now I can righteously extend mercy and forgiveness and eternal life to the sinner who comes to Christ and whom the Bible describes as being in Christ. Because when you believe on the Lord Jesus by faith and trust in Him, you put your all on Him. It's just as if you're in Christ's position. So all of Christ's benefits, all of His spiritual riches accrue to your account. It's put to your side of the ledger, as it were. And so Paul would tell them, there's going to be false teachers. And you know my life. You know my doctrine. You know what I taught, in other words, verse 10. You know how I've lived, my manner of life. You know my purpose. I'm living for the glory of the Lord Jesus. You know my faith. That is, I believe what I'm preaching. You know my long-suffering. I've endured 
all kinds of trials and tribulations and difficulties. You know my love, how the Lord changed me from being a violent, insolent, proud, blaspheming person to being one who loves humanity, who loves mankind, who loves people so much that he's willing to suffer torture to bring them the gospel. And you know my patience, that's steadfastness or perseverance. It's bearing up under the load. You know the persecutions and afflictions which I experienced, he says in verse 11. And indeed, that's the normative experience in this world for believers in Christ. If you come to Christ, inevitably, some people aren't going to like you. Some people are going to speak against you. It may cost you some friendships. It may cost you some position in your work. It may cost you your job, for all I know. In some parts of the world, it can cost you your freedom and even your life. But those are worthwhile things to pay in exchange for what Christ gives, eternal life. But he says, verse 13, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Notice, deceiving and being deceived. The false teachers aren't just cynically calculating and trying to mislead other people. They themselves are deceived. They themselves think that they're following some kind of truth, which is actually a lie. But now Timothy is told, verse 14, but continue thou in those things which thou hast heard, or rather learned, and hast been assured of. You've most assuredly believed these things and known of how thou hast learned them. Then he says in verse 15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, the Bible says that the Scriptures are absolutely essential. You cannot be saved without the Word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10 says. Because this Scripture, this Word of God, is God disclosing His mind to us. It's God showing Himself to us. And it shows us how God has visited us and provided the way of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Timothy was in that blessed situation that many of us have known of being raised in a family where he was confronted with the Holy Scriptures from his childhood. And if you believe those Scriptures, says Paul, they're able to make you wise unto salvation. And that's exactly what had happened to Timothy. He goes on in verse 16 to describe Scripture's use. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, all Scripture is God-breathed. That is, the very words of this Bible come to us from God. Now, not necessarily the English translation we use of those words. He's speaking about the original autographs of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. And our English translations are very good, many of them, and they accurately convey to us what the Greek and the Hebrew is saying. Sometimes we have to look up a word to clarify. But we can know the Word of God quite well by our English translations. But look at what this God-breathed Word is profitable for. It's profitable for doctrine, that is, teaching, for giving us what we need to live spiritually. It's profitable for reproof. 
Now, reproof is a rebuke administered for something wrong in our lives, some sin. And the Word of God is profitable for reproof because God saves us to live differently. God saves us to sanctify us, to make us a holy people. In other words, to live a righteous kind of life. It's true that you're saved by faith alone, but someone has said, saving faith never abides alone. You are saved to produce fruit. You are saved to live differently. You don't do good works to get saved. You get saved, and then the Holy Spirit of God produces the good works in your life. That doesn't come overnight. There is growth. Salvation, in that sense, is an organic thing in our lives. So the Scriptures sometimes need to reprove us. But it's also profitable for correction. When a sin is brought to my attention by the Scriptures, what am I to do about it? How am I to correct it? The Scriptures can show us how we are to live. And it is profitable, he says, for instruction in righteousness. It'll teach you all about the standards of God and what God is aiming at in saving you. You see how theocentric this is. This is all God-centered. It's for the intent, verse 17, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The idea is God wants to save you and outfit you to live differently, to live the kind of life that pleases Him, to do good, to help others, to be pleasing in Him, and you can't do that without the Holy Scriptures. Now he comes to charge Timothy in verse 1 of the next chapter. He's going to give him a solemn exhortation, a command, if you will. I charge thee, therefore, before God, that is the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the Son. Notice the Lord Jesus who shall judge the living and the dead. He's going to be the judge of all the earth, the Bible says. And it says, and by his appearing, he's going to come back to this earth again, even though people don't believe it. And by his kingdom, Christians pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Someday that will be answered. He will set up his kingdom. What's the charge? In light of the fact that there's a God in heaven who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's going to judge the earth, who's going to come back, who's going to set up his kingdom, what should Timothy then do? What should we as Christians then do? Preach the word, he says. It's the word to herald the word. A king would send out a messenger who was a herald. You know, the idea of the town crier, you know, crying two o'clock and all is well or whatever, coming forth with a message from the king. Here's what his majesty the king says. Well, Christians are to tell the world what our majesty the king of kings says. Preach the word, he says. Then he goes on to say, in season and out of season. That is, when you have fruit and when you don't have fruit. When you see results and there's no apparent results. When it seems propitious and when it doesn't. When it seems convenient and when it outright isn't. When it seems to go against the fashion of the age or when people seem more receptive. It doesn't matter. Preach the word, he says. For the time will come when they will not endure sound 
doctrine. Now, sound doctrine is that doctrine which is spiritually life-giving and spiritually healthy. And we're at that day today. People will keep itching, having itching ears, they'll keep teachers to themselves. They want something scratched. This preacher is the flavor of the week. They want to go and hear him. That preacher is the flavor of next week. They go and follow him. What's the next big thing in Christianity? And he says, but you keep preaching the same word, Timothy. You hold to the Scriptures. Because there's no other standard. There's no other gospel. There's no other truth. There's no other way to live for God than that which is set forth in the Holy Word of God. So it was good for the first century, my friends, and it's equally good for the 21st century. We must preach the Word. May God help us to do so. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the great salvation that's provided in Him, how any sinner, anyone, man, woman, or child, whatever they've done, can come to the Lord Jesus and say, Save me, Lord, a sinner. I don't want to live for myself anymore don't want to live the same kind of wicked life as always. I don't want to perish and go to the lake of fire. But they can know in the Lord Jesus that they're saved. They can know they have eternal life. They can pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, even today. We pray for anyone here, either in this auditorium or in the Sunday school. We think of the little ones, Father, especially. Open their hearts to the gospel. Show them their need of a Savior from an early age. And show them that the only Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, but not just died, who rose again to offer eternal life, proving that he was who he said he was, and proving that the payment he made was received. We thank thee for him, and we pray he'd be uplifted and glorified, and that we would indeed preach his word faithfully. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name we ask it. Amen.